It's nice being with you all here this morning. Uh, does everyone have a little outline? No? Some of you do. Yeah. Uh, my name is John. I am one of the elders here. I've been elder here for several years, well, more than several years. I'm also a professor at Cornerstone University. But depending on this, how this goes, maybe I'm not from here. And maybe I'm not from Cornerstone, but maybe I'm from Calvin College and from another church. We'll see. Um, I'm going to change things up just a little bit. So I, you have an outline of everything, basically, I'm going to say. All right, so you can sort of like tick off the marks of how long I'm going to be up here droning on. So this is like, but I'm going to change things. I'm going to start with what is his style instead of who is Mark. We're going to get to it all, maybe. We'll see. This ends at what time? 7.45? Anyone? It's these time. 11.45. Yeah, we're good. We're good. All right, well, um, so, so again, John, my last name is Marco. In the Marco household on Friday nights, we like to do a movie night and pizza, right? It's just like, and I'm pretty anal about what the movie is. Like, this is my one chance to sit down and watch a movie where something uninterrupted, right? And so sometimes I sit there for like a half hour going through things, and eventually my wife's like, just pick one. All right? Now, who's familiar with the Star Wars franchise? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, some of you are lying in here because I know that you know what, the, what Star Wars is. But, um, so I eventually decided, you know, I, I grew up on the Star Wars. That's just, that was my era. And I decided I'm going to go through the Star Wars franchise. I mean, there's just so many of them. And my girls are going to love it. And it's going to give me like 10 to 12 weeks of just straight movies. I don't have to make any decisions. We just start at like Phantom Menace and work chronologically on. It's going to be great. I was pumped. I was excited. No more half hour. So, you know, Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace, that's the one with Jar Jar Binks. What are you shaking your head? The one that says like, Misa scared. You know that one? Yeah, so half hour in, I think they're in a Senate scene, and one of my kids says, Dad, this is boring. And then another one said, yeah, this is stupid. And then I looked at my wife, my helpmeet, to look at her for assurance. And she said to me, this is pretty stupid. And then I was like, Misa's sad. And so we made it a half hour, and, and that's over. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, like, upset about this. Like, I really thought I had something here. I, I, I was lifting with Craig, Pastor Craig, the next day. I told him. I said, this, my Star Wars, it's gone. He said, which movie did you start on? And I said, The Phantom Menace. He said, that's your problem. You gotta start on the new hope. You gotta start right off. 
for the uninitiated. The uninitiated don't want to see Senate scenes and things like that. They want to see Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and lightsabers. He's like, ah. But it's, it's killed, it's kill though. And so I find the birth narrative of Christ fascinating. I find the genealogy fascinating. I even, and in Luke, the, the birth story of John the Baptist fascinating. But apparently, Mark just sort of just wanted to jump into the thick of it. Mark skips over all the stuff that the initiated find interesting and jumps right in to John the Baptist, this weird guy in the wilderness. And then right on to Christ's ministry. It's action-packed. Shortest of the Gospels. Um, in fact, the word immediately is used 42 times in the Gospel of Mark. So... It is fast-paced, and this is, this is the Gospel of Mark. Some people, because of its, its, its short, its fast-paced, it just throws you into the life of Christ. Some people say, if you're going to tell an unbeliever or someone that's just very uninitiated into the life of Christ, you start with Mark. So maybe. But who is Mark? Uh, Mark is the son of Mary, and who's Mary. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Well, Mary's house is where the early church met, according to Acts 12. Some actually think that Mary's house is maybe where the, the, um, first, com- uh, the uh, first communion was held, where the Last Supper was held. Um, John Mark, or Mark, uh, this is the assistant and cousin to the apostle Barnabas. And he actually accompanies the Apostle Barnabas and the Apostle Paul on their first missionary journey. But then he ducks out. We don't know why he leaves, but he leaves. He sort of abandons the mission. And then in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas decide to go on their another missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take his cousin Mark again. And Paul's like, nope, he's a loser. And they just, I mean, there's this big fight, and they part ways over Mark. However, we know that Paul and Mark, and likely Barnabas, are eventually reconciled because uh, Paul brings, mentions John Mark by name in Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. And this guy, John Mark, he's like out in the church. Um, he's, he's also thought to be, uh, have a very tight relationship with the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter calls him son. And tradition actually tells, tells us that the material Mark got for his gospel likely came from Peter, the Apostle Peter. Uh, Mark is thought to have produced the first gospel. Um, There's this little term in scholarship called Markan priority. Markan priority just means that Mark was likely the first gospel written. And then some think that the naked fleeing man, does anyone know what I'm talking about? The guy that pulls his cloth off and he runs away naked? Insert joke here next time I preach this can't believe I didn't make a joke off that, but here we are. Some people think that's the author. 
So, I mean, he may have actually been more intimately uh, involved with Christ than we think. So, again, some people think that this mysterious uh, first century streaker might be Mark. So, well, who's the audience? Who is the audience? This is actually, this is important to understanding not only the style of Mark, but part of the message. It is thought that the audience is likely Roman Gentile believers undergoing persecution in the time of Emperor Nero. And part of, part of the reason they think this, here, here are some of, the, some of the pieces of information or evidence that go into this, into this uh, conclusion. One, uh, a lot of Latinisms, a lot of Latin phrases are used. It's written in Greek, but Latinisms are used. Um, not a whole lot of Old Testament references. Jewish customs are explained, while Roman customs not explained. And so, and then also, suffering is a key theme in Mark. And just based on the time of when Mark lived, they just sort of, scholars have concluded that this is likely a Roman Gentile audience that is impacted some way by the persecutions under Emperor Nero. Now, the ending of Mark. I just throw this in. This is just sort of neither here nor there, but it deals with Mark. For those of you that actually have a paper copy of the Bible, actually probably on your electronic versions too, the ending of Mark 16, 9 through 20 are in double brackets. That just means we put double brackets around things when we're not sure if they actually were in the original manuscripts. As time goes on, you know, over the centuries, the church has always been interested in unearthing and studying unearthed um, manuscripts. And some of the earliest quality manuscripts do not have the, this ending, 16, 9 through 20. How does this impact you? It doesn't really impact you a whole lot. Anytime there is a question as to a text in Scripture, the editors always tell you. They're not trying to hide anything from you. Um, I, think the, I think there's only been one time in, in all my years of teaching that a textual variation actually stopped me in my tracks. And I'm like, hmm. Some of you might think, well, that's shoddy scholarship. But eh, here we are. But it usually doesn't really, it, it, you functionally, you have a functionally inerrant translation in your hands. Anywhere there's a question on the text, they'll tell you. And Mark 16, 9 through 20 is one of the most notable ones. Well, here's the cast of this Sunday morning feature, cast of characters. There's the divine, Jesus. There's the dastards the religious opponents. There's the determined, these outsiders who are very determined to be blessed by Christ. And finally, there are the dullards, the disciples. The disciples are not well portrayed in the Gospel of Mark. But those are, those are the four character groups that we'll focus on. The divine, dastards, 
determined, and the dullards. And these will help us bring across a few different themes. So the divinity of Christ is one theme. Suffering is another. Faith in outsiders is another. And the final one is the importance of proximity to Christ. So this cast of characters, as we go through them, they're going to deliver to us these four themes. So first, and most importantly, the divine. Um, it's interesting. The book of John, if you're, if you're sort of a, you know, you like to read the scriptures, you like to look at the, your uh, editor's notes and things like that, John is really well known for being the gospel that's very clear about Christ's divinity. Just very clear, right? Because it's very clear even at first blush. A first cursory read, you're like, oh yeah, John's saying. But if you, if you read carefully Mark, Mark's clear about Christ's divinity as well. Um, so I'm going to go through. There's, there's the proclamations of the divinity, the power to forgive sins. All of these point to Christ's divinity. So let's just, get, just jump into it. Proclamations of divinity. First, there are son, son of God references. And in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, they introduce Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Then in the baptism of Christ, Jesus Christ is standing there. He's, uh, during the baptism, the Holy Spirit is descending upon him. The Father calls him Son. And this is this depiction of the Trinity. You know, it, it, it points to not only an incarnational sonship, but an eternal sonship as well. Uh, during the transfiguration account, when Jesus is like glowing, uh, the Father calls him Son. And even at, the, at his death, the centurion proclaims, this is the Son of God. Now some, some contend that the meaning Son of God does not necessarily mean equal with God. However, in John, the book of John, they clearly expressly say that when Jesus was calling himself Son of God, they wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. Um, then also, proclamations of divinity, there's, if you turn in, uh, to chapter 12, there's these Lord references. There's this Lord reference. Um, Lord, if, if you look in the Old Testament, Lord is oftentimes in all caps. That is an indication of our trans, uh, how we're translating Yahweh. But it says this, 1235, 1235. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So basically, here the crowd sort of impressed that Jesus confounds the teachers because Jesus asked them, why did David call the Messiah, who is one of his own offspring, why does David call him Lord? 
the implication is that the Messiah is not only human, but also God. Then, forgiving, forgiveness of sins. Uh, jump to chapter 2. This is a very well-known passage. Um, I remember hearing a few sermons on it. I think I even taught it at one point to, to a class for some reason. But chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to read, I'm reading from the ESV. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now here's the rub. Here's the rub. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning it in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that, may, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So he speaks to this paralyzed man in chapter 1, and he says that, or I'm and says that your sins are forgiven. The scribes take this, they're saying, no, 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 only God can forgive sins. And Jesus sort of basically says, right. You know, now also, take up your mat and walk. Right. So again, Jesus even is acknowledging his divinity, but sort of in subtle ways. And we're going to get to why this subtlety later. Authority and power. Um, Jesus Christ clearly has power over the natural world. He's, he's walking on water. He's calming a storm. He feeds 5,000 out of a, a paucity of material. He feeds 4,000 again. Same situation. Healings of all sorts. Power over death. He has even power over the supernatural world. Supernatural world. The demons obey him. Angels minister to him. And then with regards to his, his authority, also his teaching style. In, in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, the text reads, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So it appears that whereas the scribes would often quote um, an earlier scribe or religious authority just to sort of back up their whatever their claim is, Jesus sort of asserted. He asserted things. Not like the scribes. Uh, teaching content. Christ had a very, just a phenomenal grasp of the scriptures. He, in fact, had, had the gumption to dismiss certain Jewish traditions. And actually, this, this one passage, we don't have the a time to get into it, but it's interesting. He actually overturns 
um, Moses' divorce mandates. Um, he actually over... So this is not to... He, he basically said what Moses told his people about divorce, that is actually null and void. And that's not to pit the New Testament against the Old Testament or anything like that. That was just Jesus goes back to the, the Genesis account and said that was never the way it was supposed to be. This was just because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed this for a time. It's just fascinating. But anyway, application, approach to Scripture. So again, the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. And then we accept the authority of Christ, we accept the authority of his apostles, and we take, and it's not just, um, I jokingly talk in my classes about the red-letter heresy. Like, like uh, you, you know, it's like, why are we... Why are certain letters put in, like, red? Is it more comforting that Jesus talked about them, said these things? Because all of, the, all, of the, all of the letters, whether they're black or red, are of equal authority in Scripture. Right? Christ, the Bible has the authority of Christ. And if you truly say, if you truly, and I've said this up here before, if if Scripture is truly your authority, you need to approach Scripture being prepared to have what you think of as reasonable and or moral overturned. Let me say that again. If Scripture is truly your authority, you need to approach it being prepared to have what you think of as reasonable and moral overturned. So we need to f- hold fast to the word. So little children, obey God always. Students, students today, I really think you have it, I think you have it a lot harder than I did. Um, I don't know, there's just... It didn't even matter if you were in a church context. There was sort of a clear, like, understanding. It seemed, I, I, we're not perfect. I did not grow up in a perfect Shangri-La. This may be showing my age a little bit. Era. But students, you're, uh, one, disagreement does not mean hatred. It does not. And also, you cannot take your secular authorities, teachers, friends. They cannot be your source of morality and reason, right? But I mean, we, this, this is for us all, though. Like, we will all say that the scriptures are authority, but by what we consume and by what we think about, what we read, etc., that sort of makes certain things seem more natural, right? And you can sort of functionally make certain things your authority and make actually approaching scripture actually more difficult. But let me share this story. I've shared this one, this story up here before too. Um, I came to Christ maybe a little later in life. I was churched though. I was churched. Um, But I remember when I was 18, I read 1 Corinthians 7 for the first time through like Christian eyes, a professing believer. And I remember thinking like I came away from that thinking, huh, Paul is telling me I'm not allowed to marry an unbeliever. This seemed very short-sighted to me. Like, I was thinking, like, 
okay, God's very smart, I'm stupid, but let me just walk you through my reasoning. I thought, like, I'm immersed, I'm immersed in a secular world. Like, most of my friends are unbelievers, most of my family at the time is unbelievers, etc., etc. So I'm like, one, what if I don't like any of the ladies at a church? What if they don't like me? Yeah, right. I'm just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> who, who doesn't want to go after the, the really skinny dude with the really long mullet? I was, I was smoking back then. Um, and then I'm thinking, like, what better way, what better way to increase the numbers of the church if every believer who wants to get married targets an unbeliever? I mean, the church will grow in leaps and bounds. But, okay. but man, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, then uh, having gone through the Bible, eventually going through seminary, and then eventually getting married to a, uh, a good Christian woman, there is nothing more reasonable than what Paul says, don't marry, of course, of course don't marry an unbeliever, but th- there, was a, there was a bit of a path it took to get there, right? As scripture as you sort of imbibe scripture and it sort of corrects and, act, and actually becomes part of your noetic processes, it actually becomes part of you. You just start to see things are just, yeah, like I get it. Of course you don't marry an unbeliever. Of course. At 18, I don't get it. But a scripture imbibed mind and a mind devoid of scripture will think radically different things as right and wrong. So hold fast to the scriptures. Next, dastards. How many uh, thought this was a bad word before today? Isn't that what my dad calls the mower when it doesn't work? I'm sorry. sorry. This isn't the lie version, is it? Is it? Great. Remember, Calvin College, visit there this summer. Um, dastards. So dastard, a dastard is someone that is unusually cruel or wicked. Okay? There is lots of... This is, this is, there's some irony here. There's some irony here. Because the Jews, Jesus' opponents, are all concerned about Rome. Guess who are the real jerks? The real dastards in Mark. It's the Jews, right? At least certain pockets of them. Now, we're so used to some of these stories. We're so used to some of these stories, but like, just, just open your Bibles to Mark 6. I'm not going to read from it, but just start perusing it. There is an extra biblical account that is sort of bolstered by what goes on in Mark 6, that Herod, the son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great's the one that went after Jesus, but this is you know, Herod, his son, Herod went to visit his half, this, this is an extra biblical account, his half-brother Philip in Rome. He fell in lust with his, his half-brother's wife. They ran off together and divorced their respective spouses and then, like, got married. So when we come to the biblical, biblical account, John the Baptist is preaching against this. 
And Herodias seems like a really classy lady. She, um, she wants her husband to kill John the Baptist because of this. Herod doesn't want to do this. He imprisons him, though. And then during this banquet, Herod um, is very impressed by some, like, dance routine that his, his uh, stepdaughter does. And, he's, and he says to her in front of everyone, uh, you know, I'll give you anything you want as a reward. And the mom, again, very classy lady, she's like, come here. She's like, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she does. And Herod, he's thinking, what will my guests think of me if I don't have a guy beheaded and the head brought up? I mean, who are these people? Like, did he actually think this? This is so messed up. You've heard it so many times, though. But, like, for someone reading this the first time, they're like, huh, this isn't the Bible. Right? But... There is such evil, and this is supposed to be, this, this is the so-called king of Israel who has just done this. Then, you have the religious opponents. Um, the scribes, certain Pharisees, um, the religious establishment plots against Christ. They actually get a murderer, Jesus Barabbas, and they have him released instead of Jesus Christ. And then... When Jesus Christ is completely bloodied, they clearly, from their perspective, won, yet they take time out of their day to go and mock him and just blaspheme him. Like, these are the religious leaders who are doing this. It's crazy. Again, we're so used to it, but I mean, this is wicked stuff. Judas, betrayer of Christ, 30 pieces of silver. He helps uh, get his friend murdered who he's never even seen commit a sin but i think the app, there's an application here i think somewhere in the text our approach to one another i do think we have to hold fast to one another um fortunately we're not in a world right now where at least where we are not in a culture where beheading someone is seems to be an acceptable thing to do at a party um but who knows, you know, eventually what's coming down the pike. Um, we do need to hold fast to one another. I mean, some of the things that Steve just prayed about, I mean, I think that sort of resonates with some of our concerns here. Um, you, know, I, you know, who knows, in, in one year, 10 years, 20 years, um, the whole COVID thing may seem like, again, not to, not to diminish, not to diminish any of the hurts, the pains that came out of that. Um, and this, it was really disruptive to the church. But, I mean, still, we have to hold fast to one another. I mean, if you think that someone in this church um, seemed a bit out of it, I mean, just compare that to what's going on in the just watch the news that person is very sane compared to the people outside this is one of the reasons i love i love going to other churches when i'm on vacation or i preach at other churches it's just a reminder like like god's people like he keeps a, a, a remainder he keeps always a remnant out there 
and we have to hold, cling to one another. So we got to sort keep battling through hurts and pains, um, do Matthew 5, do Matthew 18, but we need to hold fast to one another. Right. Uh, the determined, let's see what time it is. Goodness gracious. Hmm. Let's do this fast. This happened last time too. But I'm, I'm used to it. I can, I can manage through. I'm a professional. Remember at Calvin. Calvin, Cal, I mean Calvin University. Sorry. Um, okay. The determined. These are outsiders who like really go after Christ. And they're not the ones you would expect. They're women. They're Gentiles. They're the ones that are disabled. And they're the ones that are just like, they make the disciples seem, well, they just sort of put the disciples to shame at times. I'm going to skip over the four friends and their paralyzed friend. Let's go to the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7. And I said Syrophoenician correctly. I'm pretty proud of myself. I practiced that in the mirror. Apparently I didn't practice the sermon very much because we're really out of time. Um, okay, I'm going to read 724 and I'm going to stop at some point. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now check this out. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not... So this is Jesus talking, and he, he... Jesus, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did you just call that woman a, like, you're like, what? He just called the woman a dog? Now, to be fair, scholars think that this is not a mangy mutt, but more like a house animal. I don't know if that makes it any better. But at least they're within the family, right? We don't have a dog. We have a hedgehog, but like, it's like Mr. Pricklepants. It's his name. I didn't name him. Mr. Pricklepants. Again, I should have practiced. Sorry. Um, but then here, listen to her reply. Listen to her reply. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for the statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. This is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to understand Jesus' parable. The disciples are always like, what are you talking about, man? And she gets it, and he's like tickled. She's admitting basically the sufficiency of Christ. She is admitting that, yes, his first priority was to go to the Jews, but she knew that the overflow was going to go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were going to be brought into the church as well. And, he, and she gets it. She's okay. She understands that he's going to the Jews first, but that he's going to make it to the Gentiles. But the faith of this woman tickles Jesus. He's pleased with it. I, I picture him sort of smirking 
They're laughing when he's saying, like, like you got it. Uh, the woman with the discharge, we're going to skip over that. But approach to outsiders. Um, we, just, as the, just as these people were so determined to get to Christ for salvation, we need to also be determined to send other people to him. But you have to be around other people to send him to. Um, there, are some, there are many people in this church that I'm just very impressed. Like I, sometimes I just sit in awe. Um, let me, I'm just sort of, this is just some people that came to mind the other day when I was thinking about this. Uh, Kathy Murray. She makes her day, she, she, she's a professional daycare, but she, this is ministry. This is ministry. Like I've heard conversations she's had with other parents. I mean, she, this, is, this is a ministry. Um, one of our, uh, one of our, uh, newer members, Clayton, plays softball with him. I got a bunch of friends I know that, uh, some of which are very unchurched. We got some half-church guys, and then sometimes, you know, we go out for the, you know, the cliche, like, beer and pizza thing after a game, usually a victory. And Clayton is so good at like talking of like we're just sort of talking things sometimes things get deep but again you can only have deep conversations if you're around people for a while and man he's just so great at transitioning into like yeah until i started following the lord and he'll you like he's done this twice just just in the last few weeks and i'm thinking like clayton you don't even know your audience but he's just so natural i don't know if it's intentional this is just who he is but man it's just it's just very powerful. He's showing people to where he, like, ran. He's showing where they need to run to. And then last but not least, because we're, like, dullards. I'm just going to throw the outline out. Dullards. Those are just who, they're just a bit dull. There's plenty of examples throughout Scripture. Feeding of the 5,000, they don't get it. Feeding of the 4,000, they're still like, huh, what? Like, Jesus, there's, like, people need fed. And this is even after the feeding of the 5,000. But then we see the reason. So I have also reason for secrecy. And I intimated this earlier. One of Jesus' reasons for secrecy is that you can't understand who the Messiah is apart from the cross. You can't understand what discipleship means apart from the cross and taking up your cross. So in this passage in Mark 8, you know, Jesus is standing around with the disciples, and he's, and he's like, who do you say I am? And Peter eventually goes, says, you are the Christ. And Jesus is like, you're right, don't tell anyone. And you're like, what? The foregoing, the foregoing uh, hypothesis or theory is that Jesus doesn't want Peter to tell anyone because Peter doesn't get really what the Messiah means. And this is shown to be the case when Jesus starts immediately afterwards talking about how the Messiah must die, must be crucified, etc. And then Peter is like, uh, Jesus, uh, time out. Let me tell you what it is to be like, a, what it is, means to be the Christ. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. This is one of the reasons for this secrecy. 
is because the disciples just didn't get it. Most people didn't get it. There is the centrality of the cross. But let me just jump to the end here. But I, I do think, though, um, we need to hold fast to Christ in every way you can. Um, we need to be involved in church. We need to hold fast to, God, to the Lord's word. We need to hold fast to one another. You need to be involved in devotions. You need to be, um, you know, intentionally engaging communion, witnessing baptisms, being in accountability with one another. But let me tell you this, and this is my own, this is my own, as I've been going through this, I was thinking, well, how well do I do at this? Because I can check a lot of boxes off. But I'll tell you, when I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, you know what? I think a lot of times I approach my devotions like my 30-minute meeting with Jesus Christ. It's just one of many meetings. I go into his office, 30 minutes. All right, thank you, Jesus, close, and I'm off. Off to the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, the next thing. And I've not even really, I don't even know what I even read that morning. And that's about, i got to change my rhythms. And that's just one of the things I was reflecting on as I'm going through this. I even teach. I teach theology. I teach Bible. But you have to reflect on it. You have to give it time. Same thing with communion. You do communion, you can't just go in and wafer. That's not the point. You've got to ruminate in it, steep in it. All right. Time is done. Um, thank you. You guys have been great. I've been passable.